0: Do you have any anxiety that you feel might be holding you back? In fact, anxiety is like a forge that you can use to shape yourself according to your highest ideals. In this episode, we show you how to find the challenge at the root of your anxiety and engage it as a unique opportunity. I'm Sharif Eunice with Dr. Kevin Majors, and this is The Golden Hour. Understanding and engaging anxiety fits into our larger theory of growth. To get the complete picture, check out our four-week online masterclass available on OptimalWork.com. In it, Dr. Majors will guide you through all the key ideas of optimal work with exercises provided to help you master them. Now let's get started. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of The Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, great to be back with you. Hey, Sharif, great to be back again. Thanks for having me. Hey, Kevin. Well, uh, I know that you really specialize in helping people with anxiety, and it's something that we come back to from time to time. But I thought we've gotten a couple new inquiries and new angles on anxiety, so I thought this would be a great topic for today's episode. What do you think about that? I've been dreading that. I know it makes you anxious. Makes you worried. Don't worry. Uh, just channel the adrenaline into excitement. Exactly. My palms are sweating. So, okay, let's kick this off with a question from one of our listeners. Okay. So let me, let me read this question. Uh, first, this person says, thank you for your work on the podcast. It has been extremely beneficial to me and our organization. So that's, that's always nice to hear. Uh, And then uh, this person continues, I'm reaching out today seeking advice. I've been in a major avoidance routine with public speaking for over a year now, and it is starting to negatively impact my life. The anxiety has grown broader and is very discouraging. I remember Dr. Major saying that in order to train your amygdala, it requires frequent repeated exposure to the thing you're avoiding, even up to three times a day. Is that right, Kevin? I don't know where I said that. So,
1: because I usually think of exposure exercises being done once a day at most. Because so after you do one, there's what's called a latency period where it's hard to get it back until the next day. But uh, but I, the idea of frequent exposures, and if you can find a way to engage it multiple times a day, that's definitely beneficial. That I could say.
0: Yeah, yeah, and also I think we talk about it more broadly in the context of challenge. If you're you set a goal in a particular area, like um, overcoming distractions or being mindfulness, the more you can practice that frequently throughout the day, the more growth you'll see.
1: Exactly. Uh, so. If you're setting a challenge for yourself or like a weekly area you want to challenge yourself on, you have to be able to do something with it at least a few times a day, I think, to make real headway.
0: Yeah. So, okay, uh, I, let's continue. Uh, the problem is that public speaking engagements only occur once or twice a quarter for me, not three times a day. I sought opportunities, but the infrequency of exposure has not improved my predicament and maybe even made it worse. Even Toastmasters, which is a public speaking club, is only once a week with an actual speech occurring infrequently with the club. Do you have any cre- creative ideas as to how I can get repeated exposure to being in front of people? Uh, so, okay, I think one angle that we can take on this is just, you know, keeping it specifically about. Uh, how to you know, improve in public speaking and how to find more opportunities to get in front of people with this type of thing, uh, which is a great angle. Um, but I think we also want to broaden the question out to just talk about repetition and exposure, which we've already touched on a little bit. So, well, maybe we could just start with the, with the public speaking component and then, and then broaden it out a little bit to talk about anxiety and exposure and repetition generally.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great topic. I think when it comes to public speaking, you don't want adrenaline to get to zero. So there's no need to be doing repeated exposures, trying to get perfect extinction of the adrenaline response. You need adrenaline for public speaking. Really, in that case, what you need is a few times maybe at most Of having learned in the moment of the speech to flip the adrenaline around. So that rather than experiencing as weighing on you as a burden of anxiety, it becomes a propulsion forward. It becomes a fuel that now you're using, allowing you to hit a certain performance goal in the speech. So I always think of, say, some like a tenor who is nervous about an aria he has coming up and he has to hit a high note. Well, he wouldn't want to suppress his adrenaline because he needs the adrenaline to hit the high note. He should be thinking, the more adrenaline, the better. Let me just use it all and take it as energy, and then I'll really hit the high note with perfect clarity. So if you have a performance goal that is not related in any way to the anxiety going away, or to how you feel in the moment or what thoughts you're having, but it's in the work itself, aiming somehow to make that work better. I think that's the key. So with public speaking, you don't want the adrenaline to get to nil. You just want to get used to getting through that, that phase of having high adrenaline and then reframing it as beneficial and then utilizing it as a fuel. I also tell people that there are two phases of getting over any fear. One is learning in the moment. It's called in vivo exposure, how to get through it. So say that you're afraid of heights. Well, one thing is learning when you're on a high place to welcome the sensations of anxiety and whatever thoughts may come and see it as part of the learning curve, part of the growth. And then you'll find that soon you won't have anxiety on balconies. But if you know that there's, you're going to be, at say, some event where you're going to be, have to be in a high place at some balcony. Can't imagine what that would be, but you say that it was coming up. And it, your anticipation of the event could still produce anxiety, even though now in the setting itself, you don't have anxiety. This happens with people who are just starting out teaching. That at first, they might be nervous about having to give a class, but pretty soon they learn how to channel all of that, but they could still be nervous in the run-up, like in the lead time going into the class. So there's usually two different phases. One is that people learn to get over the their fear in the moment. And then the other is to get over the anticipatory anxiety. And that just takes a little bit longer. So every moment then, I tell them, when you notice yourself tempted to dread this thing coming up, it's like a habit you have of dreading it. That's the moment to rehearse flipping things around and welcoming yeah. adrenaline as a superpower.
0: Yeah, okay, this, this gets to a, a question that I've... Had for some time now, I you know it kind of uh, impairs my understanding of everything. But I've been suppressing <laughs> it for the longest time. So uh, when you okay, we talk about the habituation curves, and for those listeners who've done the master class or watched some of your other videos on YouTube, you can actually see them. I'll, I'll have to just describe them. Uh, that when you're um, embracing a challenge, initially your anxiety goes up and up and up to it, maybe even a ten but then as it habituates, it goes down and down and down to maybe a zero. Um, So this is like a a 90 second process in some cases that as you embrace the fear, it diminishes. So it's kind of one of these nice paradoxes that the way the fear goes away is by embracing it. Um, But now you're saying maybe it doesn't always go to zero. So that's kind of what I want to home home in on here is when you're like, does it always go to zero or does sometimes it doesn't go to zero? It goes to like a three because that's where it kind of should be. Like your body just knows that, oh, for public speaking, I want adrenaline at a four. So when I go through the habituation process, as it curves down, it it levels off at a four instead of a zero. I mean, is, is that what's going on? I don't know. Could you explain that a little Wait, bit? More? One way of saying it is that
1: you what you end up with is the right level of adrenaline to perform at your best. Okay, so that's one way of thinking of it. Another way of thinking of it is that anxiety is simply adrenaline with a negative frame. And so the anxiety part does go away as the frame becomes more enduringly positive. And then the adrenaline is all that's left, but now used as excitement or as energy in the endeavor. So yes, in some ways, anxiety does go away as a bad thing. And so, but the being keyed up and tuned up, you know, that I would, I would notice, this is you know pre-pandemic, but that if I was going to be giving a talk to a very large audience, that I wouldn't be anxious, quote unquote, before giving the talk, but I would be keyed up, and that that could happen one or two days in advance. It doesn't really happen anymore. So, but but that that used to happen more. I think that there's just the mind getting things ready. So, yeah, the anxiety doesn't, the anxiety gets transformed back into healthy adrenaline. But if these things, if the stakes are high and, and it matters to you, and particularly if there's some way of growing that you're really excited about attaining, then you want the adrenaline because it helps you stretch yourself and it helps you get there. And ultimately, that's what anxiety needs it needs a challenge that you set for yourself. To where there's now a purpose for the adrenaline, and then you can more stably reframe the adrenaline as precisely the thing that's going to propel you to get there.
0: Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. Okay. I should have brought that up earlier. It wasn't really it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, <laughs> so okay. Now, when it comes to public speaking, I kind of I have two suggestions for for this person's comment, which maybe you can comment on on how this fits in. Uh, one suggestion is that you can look for public speaking opportunities, but you can also look for smaller opportunities to do this kind of like performative speaking. So even if you're just having dinner with friends, you can launch into a kind of animated storytelling mode and and tell us a longer story or a longer joke. And that's a great way of practicing this kind of like fully investing yourself in what you're saying putting your emotions into it, your intonation intonation, working, all these aspects of it. And that's something that you can do every day, frequently every day you can do it. in any meal with coworkers, you just start telling a story and, and try to get their attention and try to get into it. So I remember you, you gave me that tip once. And that was more nerve wracking when I was about to tell a joke to a group of people than maybe some of my public speaking performances. Um, so that would be option one. I don't know if you've uh, yeah, worked I think that, that with people. Yeah,
1: and the act of in some way being vulnerable in front of a group, it's even harder with a small group than with a large group. So being more self-disclosing with under 10 people isn't, this is, I think there's there's literature on this, that can actually be more nerve-wracking you know, than giving a talk in front of 100 people. So... Why is that? Well, maybe it's just because it's more real and there's the eyes of each person there on you. It's just a little, everything's more real when it's smaller, smaller scale. Because many times you're giving a talk to a bunch of people. You're really just giving a talk to a few people because there are certain anchors you have in the audience. You're not really, but when a smaller group, you're giving a talk to more and it's more anchors than you would typically have. That'd just be one theory. But it, this is this is commonly noted by people that just being revealing in any way, even about not embarrassing things, but just like inconsequential things or little details of one's life, can be leave people feel vulnerable, and that's a great practice.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And then and then the other thing, which is I th- think, is related to the way that you do exposures, uh, which is that if the person does not fully reframe, they never really overcome the anxiety. And I think that's totally true of public speaking. Is that if you go into the public speaking without like a really, really a a full bring it on mindset and mentality that I'm just going to give it my all right here and, like, I'm going to tell jokes and I'm just going to be fully invested in it, fully invested in the message. But if, if you just kind of like go and, okay, I'm going to say what I'm going to say and that's it. And, you know, it's not going to be too bad because I'm one of four people presenting and they'll probably forget about me afterwards anyway. You know, like if you go in with that mindset, you're not really doing the full exposure. And so you're not taking full advantage of the transformative power of, of the challenge, I think.
1: Yeah. And then you don't get the same victory bounce from it. So there's something about hedging where people, they'll be somewhat invested, but not totally invested. The, oddly, that leads people to not even prepare as well as they could for the public speaking event. So they prepare good enough, which is really nerve wracking. But if you really prepare and then you rehearse it, you the, the experts say you should spend about half the amount of time rehearsing. Well, your your total prep time should be half rehearsal and half writing when it comes to you know, giving a speech of any kind well that means that i don't think people who are anxious will rehearse ever i mean some do but but the, but commonly the people who I work with in my practice they avoid the whole thing and then they kind of push their way through the experience itself but maybe there is this thing where they were, were playing it safe in some way by not fully investing themselves in the whole process but if you just like let it all out you give your best effort that's how your best effort gets better and better each time but if you don't give your best effort in it then it doesn't really get stretched so it doesn't really grow yeah
0: yeah that's that's right that's exactly right so okay Kevin maybe now we could broaden the discussion out to be anxiety per se uh so in talking uh this this question of um if the the original question raised was, was like how do I deal with anxiety if I don't have frequent repeated exposure? And I think that might be the case for some people if they're anxious about a kind of bigger picture life question. So uh, maybe a high schooler who's anxious about the whole college application process or a college student who's ap- w- nervous about their first job or someone in a job who's kind of generally anxious about their performance, but it's not like one specific thing coming up that they're anxious about. There's no real specific trigger. So how, how do you work anxiety if there's no obvious trigger for it? Mm-hmm. This also happens a lot when
1: people are anxious about world events. So I see this in my practice, people that can be have panic attacks because of a war going on or political unrest of of different different types. So which then seems strange, right? Like how do you help someone when there's no exposure to be done and it, there's nothing for them to do. There's evil in the world, there's bad things that happen. And so and that causes them anxiety. I think that that way of thinking of it may not be correct. It's perhaps not so much the case that there is some situation so broad that there's really nothing for them to do right now about it there's a phenomenon that we see a lot called displacement and what that means is that there is some anxiety someone is experiencing or someone that there's some anxiety in someone's life that is happening right now that's being triggered but in some ways it's being denied they're denying it a hearing. And that could be for many different reasons. It might be that the person isn't really admitting to themselves how much something is is weighing on them. Or it could be that there is such habitual avoidance of a certain topic that it's hard for them to let themselves even think of it. But yet staring, it's like the elephant in the room. Well, in those cases, then the anxiety can get displaced to other things. So if uh, a person is really anxious about getting fired f- from his job you know then it may show up in you know in some other topic it could be something it could be kind of put onto a world screen so that now they're really anxious about this but you have to see that that, that kind of more global free floating situation, like broad situation anxiety may just be the channel that anxiety is getting funneled into that that that's rather than being the thing itself. So yes, that thing does make them anxious to some extent, but it also makes them anxious in a way that they find acceptable and that they're able to then admit the anxiety. And it almost works like some kind of outflow tract for the built up tension that's been in them and all gets poured into something. You see this also like another version of it in people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, that no matter what makes them anxious, their OCD gets worse. So they experience everything as a worsening of OCD. But it might really be that there's a very real situation in their life that they're not addressing at all. And the worse it gets, the worse their OCD gets. And it's just that that is how they experience anxiety now is they just obsess about whatever the topic might be. They obsess about, you know, the the faucets not being turned completely off, you know, but so you could do exposures to those faucets, but what you would find is if you're not really uncovering the main driver of it, you're not going to change the ultimate outcome or dynamic. So really the question is, in my mind when I'm treating people, does this make sense? What is the thing that to me makes sense as a story that, th- that explains why they're so anxious? And if someone says it's not, you know, not saying that everyone with global worries and anxieties is displacing it, I'm just saying it's a common thing that's seen. So at least it's worth asking the question, is there actually something in their life right now that they could be engaging and that there's a there's a challenge waiting for them that just need, and that's what the adrenaline is actually for.
0: Yeah. Okay, that, that's a very interesting take. Uh, so displacement, I mean, that's that sounds like a common phenomenon. Is that something that is only relevant in these kind of like I don't want to say extreme clinical, but I'm just going to say extreme clinical. These types of situations, or is that something that to to some degree is like, how would would you apply that insight to just normal day-to-day situations? Are there applications of it? I
1: think that displacement may be the most ordinary way people experience emotion. So that... And you can ask yourself, you know, yourself and the listeners can ask themselves, you know, when you're bothered by something, like say you get short-tempered or interiorly you start, oh, you just get exasperated by something. Is that really the thing bothering you usually? Or isn't it more the case that there was something else, you know, and then it kind of sets the stage. And then the other little things are like a straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, and then the person gets all frustrated. I think it's true for every emotion. You know that uh, displacement has a, is is a powerful phenomenon. It even works in a strange way with addictions that whenever there's a stress in people's lives, then they alt- they will reflexively go to the addiction, you know, as as the thing and then the addiction gets worse, but you really have to address what is the underlying thing? You know, that many times addictions are just escapes which is just another kind of anxiety. So it's just that they're they're fleeing from the real life and they're they're actually trying in some way to reduce their experience of a challenge but they're using a drug or a behavior to do that. You know and so again it's displacement though it's the same physics I think of displacement that they're not dealing with the real issue and so they experience these other issues on the side.
0: Yeah. Okay so that then the the solution is get to Root causes. Uncover the root causes, which is always a, a kind of hidden challenge that's being avoided. Yeah, and
1: that might be the hardest thing to be sincere about: is what is the real challenge I'm facing right now? So, no matter what it might seem to be, like, oh, I'm, I have this anxiety issue. I have this, you know, this, you know, this craving or this anger. Whatever the issues might seem to be, does it make sense that that's the real issue? Or are there other things in your life that you just don't know what to do with? There are challenges you don't know how to engage. Maybe for decades you haven't engaged it, or maybe maybe you've never really learned how to engage it. Clearly, if you were really good at dealing with that challenge, it would just bring out the best in you, and you would engage it, and you would grow. But that's kind of that's what anxiety. That's what adrenaline is there for. It's there to help us invest ourselves totally in the challenge. Like like you were saying with public speaking, you have to put yourself totally in it. Let the reframe be complete. And that's exactly the same in all these other things. It's the specific real challenge that you have, are now actively using to stretch yourself. That's what makes everything real. And then I think people find these other things tend to, then I don't know, the displacement starts to wane. And then people find that, okay, now, they're getting traction in life again.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. And then, so as as a follow-up to this, we, we often make the distinction between quantity and quality challenges. So uh, a quantity challenge being, I want to accomplish this amount of work or read this number of pages in this amount of time. So I'm kind of pushing the boundaries of one of those quantities versus a quality challenge, which is how can I do this in a new and better way? So, and now if challenge is kind of at the core of addressing challenge, it's at the core of addressing the anxiety. How do you, is there a difference in these types of challenges, like quantity challenges for, for anxiety versus quality?
1: Well, it makes me think of studies that have been done uh, you know, showing the relationship of dopamine and anxiety and how these things work together and that when people are in situations that where there could be a big payoff of dopamine, they also have leading up to it much anxiety. So you could think of like, if that tender hits the high note really well, that would be a huge dopamine rush, Yeah, but there's also anxiety involved in it. But dopamine also helps to moderate and make positive the experience of anxiety. Well, just looking from that perspective, you want them to work together. If you, you're doing quantity challenges, Which is like i just want to instead of i have so much to do i've i'm trying to see how to instead of reading these you know 40 pages in an hour i'm going to read them in 45 minutes you know and so you you know the quantity
0: challenge
1: quantity challenges can be good for helping you to stay on task and to engage and and so you stay engaged because if you gave yourself four hours to read those pages you might be wandering all over the place but at some point it's just, a, it becomes about just getting this thing done. And, it, and yeah, getting it done will give you a bit of dopamine, but outcomes don't really give you much dopamine. So, and if, even if the outcome is attaining some status, you get some promotion, you get a new job, you get into the school of your choice. Yeah, it lasts for a little while, but not that long. It, it wears off. So, things that you can just get done are not a stable source of dopamine. You know, and you can have a lot more than unregulated anxiety as you pursue them, because there's nothing counterbalancing it in the brain. This is one line of research that suggests that. But when you think of quality challenges, which is how can I do this task in a new and better way with more mastery, with more of an ideal? with more order intensity, with, with more patience, more understanding, more generosity, more love. So you think of those challenges, well, those things will matter to us more deeply. They are not an outcome, but a whole trajectory of growth. And trajectories give you enduring dopamine. Because if you really value being a wise, generous, patient, loving person, whatever... The ideal that most strikes you in that moment you will get dopamine as you make steps of progress towards it and if you can make those steps of progress within the midst of big challenges it's even deeper so bringing ideals into your biggest challenges with a that's you do that by using some quality challenge in it so it's not enough that you you might be i don't know, nervous about some people have social anxiety they're nervous about their upcoming dinner with some friends, you know, and an outcome would be to simply have no anxiety while you're there. Well, that's not great because you don't have, even, you don't even have control over that outcome, you know, or just getting through the meal, you know, eh, if you, but if they were to think of some quality challenge, like even with my anxiety, I'm just going to try to be generous in giving my best attention and interest to the people there are with. Well, that is something that's beautiful, that is something more deeply motivating. And then in the moment as they're doing it, you know they get more and more dopamine, which makes the entire experience better and the learning even goes deeper. So it really, the best thing we can do is find a way to challenge ourselves in the very thing that makes us anxious. But the challenge isn't getting rid of anxiety. The challenge is doing that better and bringing in ideals and deeper motives of love and service into that challenge is the best way of doing that. And that's how we kind of forge our character. You know, it's almost like the anxiety is the heat of the forge, but we need to be intentionally shaping it in the midst of that. So it's not just about cooling the thing off. It's about giving, you know, the thing the right forge shape in that moment of plasticity.
0: Yeah. Well, Kevin, that's a very beautiful and powerful note, I think, for us to end on. I think <laughs> uh, so. Because we're, we're now out of time. Um, yeah. But uh, so we'll, we'll be back next week. All right, Shreve, thanks a lot for your questions. Awesome. See you soon. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out optinwork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.